We're upstairs at the Old Red Lion Theatre, and we're joined by a special guest, Alexander, from Sweden, a Malmo fan. Malmo fan. Uh, he popped in because he lives just down the road to say hello to us, and we thought, since England are playing Sweden on Saturday, we might as well bring him up and ask him a couple of questions. So, how are you feeling about the game? You sounded pretty confident downstairs. I'm pretty confident, but I think I'm most confident because England is too confident. Right, I see. Not England as a team, but England as a nation. Right, okay. What's, what's wrong That's with confidence, always. Alexander? It's good, it's good. I, I admire it. Sweden doesn't have too much of it. I think we're confident after the games. I see that's rather than before. <laughs> My perception of uh, Sweden is that it is of a nation full of confidence and mm. uh, self determination. I, I have nothing but love for Sweden. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, downstairs, you said your head was saying one one. Your heart was saying one nil Sweden. Yeah. What, what What do you think of the one one? You think it got the penalties? Yeah, unfortunately, because since Colombia, I think England has gained a lot of. Self-confidence yeah. and penalties, yeah, you which, is a, which, which was a weak, weak point before. And credit to Southgate yeah. for that. Yeah. I mean, from what I've heard from, from podcasts and reading and everything, he's been doing a lot of work, both psychologically and yeah. in training, to, yeah. to get that ghost out of the way. Would you reckon, Alex, you think penalties is a reasonable shout? Yeah, I, I was just saying before the game, I think it'll be... Before the game, before the podcast... Um, I think it'll be nervy because I think Sweden know exactly what they want to do. Um, I think they'll feel like their results to this point show that they can close a game down. They can frustrate teams. Um, you know, everyone was really excited by the way Mexico were playing, and there are some similarities I think maybe between Mexico and England in mm. terms of uh, creating. Uh, overloads out wide, looking to counter very quickly, pushing people from the half space out into the wide space, and, and Sweden frustrated that superbly well. Um, so, yes, I think I think both sides will probably create some chances, but mm. penalties is is not a silly shout at all. No, okay. I think a key thing to notice as well is that Sweden has created tons of chances, but. Mm. They haven't been scoring a lot. I right. mean, Berg has missed most chances in the whole World Cup, I think. Yeah, and Ekdal. Ekdal last against, yeah. Uh, which is a good thing in a bad way. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah like really. And in both cases, you get way too much weight behind the ball. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think if we can transform those chances into goals, yeah. of course, that's a, that's a huge win for us. Yeah. But what you've seen as a, as a positive factor from this is that you notice that Sweden keeps going despite losing chances, yeah. which is, I think, a good psychological kind of aspect yeah. of the players. Um, a lot of teams kind of, you often see they, they miss too many chances and they kind of get like, ah, oh, it's not our day. Yeah, uh, heads go down. Yeah, it's it's a team that keeps on, like they're, they're honest to their, their mm. idea of football. Yeah. But it's interesting. I don't know how we're going to play it. I think... With England and Kane, who's the most clinical striker, we're going to go up for yeah. up against in the whole tournament. I think we need to up our game, like yeah. you said about England as well. I think uh, I think if England, if both teams play like their last game, it's going to be even. You're right. If one of them finds that next level, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you what you thought. I mean, from the Swedish perspective, obviously you live in London, mm -hmm. surrounded by English people. But from the Swedish perspective, what do you make of the England team now? Maybe you know compared to a few years ago. What do you, without being partisan, what yeah. do you reckon to England's chances if they can beat Sweden? I think 
they're probably going to go up against Croatia mm. next round if they win, which I my heart's on England mm. there as well. I I really like the English team. Yeah. Um, I really like their way of playing football. I like Southgate. It's a way more humble team than you've seen recently. It's a way more pragmatic team as well. Mm. It's not just squeezing superstars into. I don't know if you said it or if it was another podcast, but you know you play with four inner mid- central midfielders, right, and yeah. a midfield four, and you don't you have the quality, but you don't have the idea of play. Yeah. This year, I think with a three-five-two, or three-four-one-two, or whatever you want to call it, I think they really found something that works mm. for England and for getting the most out of the squad. Um, and they've stuck with it, despite the fact yeah. that not. Always have they got the results, and I yeah. think that again is English. The English football world is quite knee-jerk in its changes. Sometimes, oh, that didn't work. Okay, let's go to a back four straight away. And mm. Southgate's really kind of stuck to his guns. This is how he wants them to play, and that's what they keep working towards. I think that's very effective. Yeah. And I myself in the preseason wasn't too persuaded by by the back three. Like no. from what I could see uh, and read, I think. It looked like a good idea, but it didn't feel 100% solid. Mm. Um, but, I mean, now they're in quarterfinals and they've been doing it great. The only team, the only game they lost was a game they kind of wanted to lose, to yeah, be fair. Sure. Um, well, what were your realistic expectations for Sweden before the tournament started? Ooh, not this big. Not this like, big. Really, I, I, th- I thought... Did you think they'd get out of the groups? I thought didn't. so. I thought yeah? so. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure. I wasn't confident. But I thought it was a good chance, especially because even before the uh, before the World Cup, I knew that Mexico would be a good team for Sweden to go against. Mm. With like we saw, like with how Sweden plays against Mexico, it's it's very hard for a team like Mexico to yeah. unravel a Swedish defense. So, but like most other people, I thought Germany was going to finish at nine points yeah. and, and yeah. maybe seven <laughs> if Sweden could steal a point. But, you know, here we are. Who's Sweden who's, uh, who's Sweden's historic rivals? Do you have a nation rival? I think Denmark, Denmark. Is, is, yeah. is just geographically as well. Right. Uh, we went up against them in the qualifier right. in the for the Euros. The last one won. Um, nice. That's when Slatan said that. Because uh, the Danish media, one of the newspaper. they photoshopped an image with Slatan's head on a pensioner. Right. And they were like, it's time to put sent Slatan to sure. to retirement. Yeah. And then after they won, Slatan being Slatan just said uh, yeah, they said I was they said we're gonna put me in retirement, but I put their whole nation in retirement. <laughs> I was gonna ask you about Slatan yeah. because obviously he's the absence uh, for the Swedish team at this World Cup, we've seen him be part of the Swedish team for the last decade or so and he's always been the star player. And one of the things that people have, have commented on this Swedish team is the fact that there aren't really any superstars in the team, but mm. they seem to maybe be more cohesive because of it. Do you think that's fair? Were you hoping that Slatan would stick around for this? I or? did not. No. Like, really, I'm good riddance. Yeah. With him. Uh, amazing player. Mm. I, you know, I wouldn't take anything from what he's done. I mean, the the four two against England, offensive yeah. arena, and, and everything. But I think he doesn't fit into the way Sweden should play right. um, international football. Um, previously, you've seen Sweden under uh, Erik Hamrian, which mm. is a former. It's a Swedish uh, like a coach, right? Yeah. Um, and he was from I don't know when he started, but he was up until 
the last Euros. Mm. And he had this idea that Sweden would play uh, international kind of football and, and we can beat any team. Mm. Um, and it's a nice thought, but he couldn't make it happen. Right, yeah. And I think Slatan took way too much space in mm. the side. Uh, every ball had to go through Slatan, everything had to be about him. Yeah. Um, I think if Slatan could play, if Slatan could fit in to a 4 4 2, like we're playing now, of course he would score more chances than Marcus Berg, but he wouldn't do the same amount of, of, of work. Right, yeah. Um, so you need like an unselfish nine up. There. I think we need it, yeah, like yeah. really. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, you could kind of see it the same with Ronaldo in Portugal. But Ronaldo works because he works for. I think Ronaldo realizes that if he works for the team, mm. it'll benefit him himself, yeah. and then he has that extra edge. Mm. Whereas Slatan, sometimes he kind of waits for the teammates to produce something for him. Yeah. Um, when he gets the chance, I mean, he's lethal, definitely. Yeah. But I don't think it's it's a bad thing that he's out of the team. Okay. And also with the ACL, I mean. Yeah. It's hard to come back from. Yeah. True. Okay. Hey, Alexander, thanks so much for, for coming down. And thanks for having us. me. It's been, uh, it's been great to get the Swedish perspective yeah. on Saturday's big game. What's your prediction then? Your, your I, final I don't think, prediction? I don't think it's coming home. No. <laughs> Which way? Which way is it coming? That's confusing. Well, I mean, home is not... Sweden is not the home of football, <laughs> no, so right, obviously. Okay. Uh, like I said, I think... Was, one I want to score It's going to be... One, one. Yeah, it has to be a one-one. And one. penalties. You're breaking Swedish hearts everywhere. You've got, you got to go. Through. I'm going to say... I'm going to say Sweden... Hey, there's a goal uh, in the background. Yeah, We're also watching uh, France Uruguay. Was it a good goal, Alex? Missed that one. It was all right. It was all right. It was a goal. Football happened. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> all right, uh, Alexander. Thank you so much, man. Thank and, you very uh, much. Thanks nice for coming you. down, listening to the podcast, and uh, we'll see you again. Okay. Well, France beat Uruguay two 0 It seemed from my half uh, paying attention eye that uh, it was almost casual. Although Alex, you informed me that Uruguay. Uh, had some of the better play in the first half. I'm looking at the stats now, and it shows uh, an equal number of shots. France had two shots on target, both of which they scored. Um, Uruguay, four, didn't manage to make any stick. What was the problem for Uruguay in this game? And presumably it wasn't as casual as it, as it appeared to a casual viewer. No, the first half, Uruguay and France sort of matched one another. Torreira played really, really well at the base of the Uruguay midfield. Obviously, they were missing Cavani, because you would, uh, and Stuani did reasonably well, but he was dropping a bit deeper than Cavani would, possibly because um, he doesn't have his pace, and because France were able to put Uruguay under a certain amount of pressure. Mm. Um, France had quite a lot of joy down the flanks, as we expected, because Uruguay's midfield diamond formation does deprive them of a bit of width. Um so that was expected. I think you know the the France kind of took a stranglehold on the game towards the the middle of the second half. Really, um, I think the wind was taken out of Uruguay's sails by Muslera's error um, mm. quite significantly, uh, and the lack of of chances that they got to stick. Loris made a very very good save, which Godin couldn't follow up on. Um, I think if he had been able to, that would have given the game a, a very different complexion. But yeah. France, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you, if you watch the last 10 minutes of the match, you'd think France absolutely strolled it. That's the bit I watched. That's the bit you watched, yeah. which is why you think that. Yeah. But um, no, Uruguay gave a reasonable account of themselves to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it, it's difficult really to say much tactically about the game in terms of, of anything different because both sides played more or less how we expected they would. Um, well, what I might do is come back to you in a moment after I've spoken to Phil and we can talk about how France, if they did, sort of broke down a Uruguay team who were, who were well-known this tournament for being fairly defensive. Phil, um, from the, what you saw of the game and from what I heard of the game, which I was... Ex- I was expecting to sit here this afternoon and hear sort of angry and frustrated and uh, and uh, nervous noises from you. Uh, I didn't really hear any of those. From what you saw of the game, what did you make of the French performance and how do you feel about the team going forward? It was a lot more calming. I, mean, I, d- I did say before this game started that I was, to a certain extent, prepared to lose almost to, to Uruguay. It wouldn't have bothered me that much to, you know, got to, fight, to have got us fighting with us for quarterfinals. Yeah. But I uh, know there was an element, certainly, so I... I Unfortunately, didn't catch the first half either. But during the second half, they, they don't know. They had a certain calmness mm. about the French squad, which I don't usually associate with them. Do you think um, watching that was more to do with France being comfortable, or, or more to do with Uruguay not offering much in the second it's half? A bit of both, I think. Um, I think obviously there were there were certainly Uruguayan chances, especially if they had made slightly different decisions. That there might be even more difficulties for for Lloris. But um, I think it was at the same time. France had done something which we, I think, we commended um, England for doing a lot, which is actually keeping quite calm and cool at the back, and that's yeah. something that's increased throughout the tournament. Yeah. From um, the kind of early, quite flappy performances, uh, especially against Australia, I think that they've really have gone into the tournament, and I think the defence um, is a is a big part of that as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, Alex, um, on the on the sort of notion then of uh, France needing to break down the Uruguay team before the, before the game was played. What I was expecting uh, to see was a, a sort of stodgy and organised uh, Uruguay defensive performance, which France, uh, a sort of team that France haven't really f- <coughs> faced uh, so far this this tournament. And there, there are some parallels in my mind between this game and the England-Sweden game, for example, which is a, a, another game where there's arguably a clear favourite, a team that is uh, slightly more attacking, um, that needs to break down the other. There's no obviously wasn't as much of a clear favourite in this game as there might be in the England Sweden one. How did France do that? Bearing in mind that that Raphael Varane's goal was from a set piece. I mean, it's, that presumably was one of the angles, right? That was one of the angles. Um, I think that the two key things that France did well um, were attacking down the sides, particularly down the right hand side. Mbappe and Pavard combined to target Laxalt very well. Um, they're, they're, as we highlighted in the Mbappe video that we did, they're good at combining either with Pavard then going round on the overlap or Mbappe continuing forwards or cutting inside. Yeah. So those two combining doesn't always result in the same thing occurring and right. that, that caused Laxalt a degree of difficulty. Uh, the midfielder on his side trying to get over to cover didn't always get that right. So. Yeah. And they go wide because of the space, because of Uruguay's midfield formation? No, I think they do it anyway, right. but it works particularly well against teams that play quite narrowly. Right, okay. uh, it is their natural instinct, yeah. irrespective of who they're playing. Um, it's just whether they'll find that degree of space or not. Uh, the other thing I think that was important was Giroud had a fantastic game. Right. Um, he was getting through a lot of that work that we talked about against the two big centre-halves, disrupting their defensive line, yeah. um, little flicks forward or back, Griezmann running off. Right. Um, Griezmann was able to find quite a lot of space, um, particularly as the game wore on and Torreira 
attempted to get forward a little bit more and try and uh, exert a counter-attacking influence for Uruguay. Griezmann started to exploit the room that he was finding there. Yeah. Um, but Giroud worked extremely hard all game to ensure that when France had an outball that it stuck um, and that he was able to bring those quick attacking players, particularly Griezmann and, and Tolisso, pushing up from the left-hand side and in. Yeah. Um, do, do, do you think Olivier Giroud is undervalued? Because... He was at Arsenal for, for a very long time um, and you got the impression from lots of supporters that whilst he was a, a useful player to have in the team and he did, con- he did contribute in terms of assists and, and goals, he was never viewed as this star striker that perhaps a, a top Premier League side might want to have. Um, and there was you know, constant talk uh, of, of transfers, bringing in new players. Eventually Giroud has been, been sold and sold to, to Chelsea, which is an, another team that perhaps people, some people were surprised that he's ended up there. Do you think as a player he's, he's undervalued in terms of what he offers and is perhaps his performance in a game like this something that might give us a little bit of insight as to why uh, big coaches want him at their club? Yeah, hugely. Um, I think one of the, so there's, there's, there's a myth about Giroud, which is that he's a link player and not a goal scorer. Yeah. That isn't true. He's got an amazing touch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's very good at both, but yeah. he does score goals. Um, I think it's a, it, it's an issue that there's a, an obsession in the Premier League, particularly with strikers, about pace. Yeah. And every team wants to have a really, really quick striker, the sort of player who bursts through. Um, with Arsenal, it's to kind of create those sort of um, intricate passing moves that then result in somebody... You know, bursting through and, and tapping home, mm. um, and Giroud works really well in that system. If he's kind of like the second or third remove yeah. from who bursts forward, so. because because some of those very Arsenal goals, and I think particularly, perhaps this is even maybe four years ago now, but that incredible goal of the season contender that Jack Wilshere scored, yeah, the one against Norwich, Giroud was a central part of. Yeah. You know, and two little touches and that wonderful pass through. Giroud's an incredibly intelligent footballer around the box. Mm. Uh, and it, it's not just the deafness of touch that allows him to play those passes, it's his awareness of what everybody else is doing around him, including defensive players. Yeah. You know, the, the, the touch... And a bit of an instinct as well. For, the touch for uh, Mbappe's goal against Argentina mm. was absolutely brilliant. Um, and, he, you know, he was facing the Argentine defence there. He knew where everybody was, he knew where Mbappe was going to be and was able to put that pass to him on a plate mm. with Mbappe where was able to take it without breaking stride. Um, I think if you if you want a striker who's going to be like a, a Pierre Emerick Aubameyang mm. and you know kind of whiz through and and score one on ones, you know, Giroud is not that player. Yeah. But in terms of having somebody that you can focus an attack around, having him as an option, you know, I think France have constructed themselves, particularly on the right hand side and behind with that Giroud focal point in mind. Because mm. Mbappe, Pavard, Griezmann hanging off that, you know, they all work around where Giroud is and what he's doing. Mm. And that doesn't even necessarily mean that Giroud has to have the ball. That's partly because by being there, by being an aerial option, by occupying defenders by backing into them or making little darting runs, you know, he's he 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 keeps defenses. Oh, it's a horrible expression. He keeps them honest, mm. and that allows these these quicker players to find space around that. So yeah. I, I think anybody who doesn't 
think that Giroud is an exceptional player is is wrong about football. Well, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> you have to answer that he was exceptional now, Phil. When I ask you, but I'm asking you because you not only are you a French supporter, but you're also you're fond of Arsenal and yeah. you you watch them regularly. And of course, Giroud didn't start in France's first game for the World Cup. I mean, that that seems to whether that was specific to that game or not, I'm not sure. But if it wasn't, that seems to have been rectified. Now, are you happy with him being? the first choice player for the team. Can you see all of the things that Alex is, is Certainly. saying? Certainly, yeah. I mean, again, as Alex pointed out, the, the case in point was um, was Mbappe's second, which was a delightful free ball. And I think it's it's something that doesn't get commented enough on uh, during, the Premier, during the Premier League season, yeah. that, she, that he does have that value. I mean, it's also not to discount how important those kind of late goals or those kind of slightly more bullish goals are as well. And... Um, Especially against certain teams, and especially playing against someone like a team like Uruguay, with uh, Godin Jimenez at the back is absolutely the right choice. Now, mm. looking at Brazil or Belgium, there's there's an argument that if it's a system that's kind of working, then why switch it round at this moment? But um, yeah, I'd say probably stick with him. Okay, yeah. great. Maybe he's a World Cup winner. Yeah, he could be like you know Scalacci. Mm. You know. Well, of all the teams, I would say that France. Seem to have surpassed games with a. Um, I, I should mention we're upstairs at the Old Red Line. It's rush hour. There seems. I think the Indy 500 is going on outside or something. There's an awful <laughs> lot of loud engines, uh, and there's a siren. France seem to be one of these teams that, uh, in this tournament at least, has eased is perhaps too easy a word, but they 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 they've sort of. They've kind of danced past teams, not in a particularly attractive way at all times. I mean, the the game against Argentina stands out as, as slightly different, given the context. But they look like they're kind of comfortable. And I mean, is that what you're looking for in a tournament like this? I mean, they must be high on confidence. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, I think the word is that they've they've kind of accelerated a bit as well. Yeah. And there's an argument that you know, they kind of did the bare minimums to get through the group stage. It made me very cross watching it. Yeah. But that having been said, they, they did very much enough to, to get you know two victories out yeah. of that and okay. still a fair whack in the tank for yeah. you know, for these these big games and especially against teams like Uruguay who are very hard working um, that's massively valuable and, so the, and going into a game which is either going to be Belgium or Brazil to have that kind of level of energy and um, it's going to be totally completely invaluable I'd say yeah. I think if, if I'm a, a France supporter as well I would look at the fact that the the game against Argentina and the game against Uruguay were chalk and cheese in terms mm. of what was required, uh, and and France managed to get through both of those fairly comfortably. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, 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 I think the four three there was a an undue gloss on that score as far as Argentina were concerned. Mm. But yeah, you, you had a very open game, a very quick game uh, against Argentina. They were fine. You had a game where they required more patience, more thought, more organisation against Uruguay. They were fine. And they managed both, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think what's interesting is they managed both without really making massive changes. No. Um, uh, Matuidi out for this game, Tolisso in. But aside from that, it's the same team. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a, an understanding there. They all know what they're supposed to be doing. The combinations... You know whether it's Pavard and Mbappe or it's uh, Hernandez and 
Tolisso and Griezmann and Giroud, you know, those little combinations are all working really well. Yeah. Um, it's very exciting. I, I would be confident were a French supporter. I am I now. Say. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. I did say before that if they get if they got past Uruguay, they'll probably be my favourites to win the tournament. And okay. I, I, like I said, we've got quite a good record against Brazil. Mm. And I don't see why we can't beat Belgium. Okay. I think what's also good is is to have a game like the Argentina game mm-hmm. where you score a lot of goals but and that gives your attacking play confidence but you concede a few that maybe you shouldn't have done and mm. that just causes a tightening up. Yeah. I think we saw the tightness there today against Uruguay but it's also a kind of you know that they Brazil haven't been tested mm-hmm. really that in so far as Brazil have been tested it's how you break down a really really resolute organized defense that sits very deep well I'll tell you what we're going to find out whether they will be tested a little bit later on so let's save this conversation for the next part of the podcast after we've seen that game otherwise it might be completely irrelevant by the time by the time we get there that's very true um we made predictions for this game I think Phil gets the point. 2-0 was your... 2-1 was your say. 2-1, yeah. yeah uh, you're, you are the closest, so you're storming ahead. He's on now. He's got to break 10 before this is over. And I'm pretty certain we can now say that with the just the number of games that are left, uh, it's essentially impossible for anyone to beat if you I, now. If I, if I get one... There's three one, more quarterfinals. I, I think I've won. There's three more quarterfinals, two semifinals, two more games. So there's seven games left. So unless Alex or I won every single one of those points... There's, um, there's not seven games left, is there? Well, there's three quarterfinals, there's two semifinals, which is five, and then there's the final oh, and the yeah, round of three, so enough, there's yeah. seven games left, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, unless one of us won all of those, yeah. you have won. I've just been biding my time. Sure, <laughs> okay, now he's going to kick into kit. Uh, let's make some predictions then for the next game, which is Belgium-Brazil. I don't even know where to start. Phil? I'll go Two one to Brazil. Yeah. Oh, he's such a. <laughs> You'd stop going to me first. Boring tit. Right, you go, Alex. Three one Belgium. Three one Belgium. Yeah, that's what I was going to go for. <laughs> All right. Uh... <laughs> Here we go. You ready for mine? Yeah, you ready for mine? I'm going to go yeah. with. <laughs> what am I going with? I'm flitting between one nil Brazil and five nil Belgium. Uh, I'm going to go for. What pens? One one no 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 no. This is an awful podcast. Just fucking pick something. I can't. I can't pick. Two one Belgium. Okay. I'm undercutting you. Cool. Because you left me with no option. Well, whatever. Uh, right. Well, we'll be back in a little bit to uh, talk about that game after it's happened and award Phil his point as uh, <laughs> he always wins. Uh, right. Back in a bit. Okay. So Belgium two, Brazil one. Let's start, Alex, by talking about Belgium's shape, because in the first half, that was the most interesting thing about the game. It took us a while to work out what was going on, and after about 20 minutes, we decided that Belgium were, and correct me if I'm wrong, playing with a three at the back in possession, and a four at the back when they were out of possession, with Mounier tucking in, and Jan Vertonghen tucking in on the left to make the three, and then staying back to keep the four <laughs> with Chadley somewhere else and there was like a midfield diamond and then there was uh, Lukaku on the right but then on the left and then Azar was everywhere De Bruyne you know I don't know what's happening <laughs> okay so when they were defending yeah they were a 4-3-3 yeah Chadley was the left hand side of midfield yeah uh, Vetzel was slightly deeper 
Uh, Fellaini was on the right. And De Bruyne was up top. De Bruyne was playing effectively as a false nine. Which which is why it looked like a midfield diamond, but it wasn't. Yeah. Um, But when they were pressing, which they didn't do massively concertedly, then De Bruyne was actually slightly further ahead of Lukaku and Hazard on the left. Yeah. Like you say, uh, Vertonghen was effectively left-back, Mounier right-back. In possession, that then switched, so Mounier got really high, Chadley tucked outside wide left, Hazard and De Bruyne dropped off a bit, but pushed up. Lukaku often stayed quite high on the right-hand side. Um, I'd never seen him do this before, um, because I don't remember a single Everton game of 2014, but apparently Mm. there was a 3-0 victory over Arsenal where Martinez did the same thing. He used Stephen Naismith. In in fact, we should say Kevin De Bruyne was in the Naismith role. Um, Lukaku was doing it again. Naismith, the uh, the roadmaker. Right, absolutely. The trailblazer. Um, So, yeah, I mean, look, we've seen two massive tactical shifts. Sorry, sorry. I just have to say Norwich City legend whenever a Norwich player is mentioned. We've seen two massive tactical shifts by teams in the course of this World Cup. One was Russia having gone through the group stages with four at the back. Yeah. A big change from how they played previously, suddenly reverting to a 5-4-1. Five, five, and surprising game against Spain, Spain. Yeah. And surprising Spain and it working. Yeah. Here we've seen Belgium do something that, you know... When Fellaini, Witzel and De Bruyne were all named on the team sheet, we thought we were being very clever by going, oh, well, Fellaini will probably kind of play up in the inside left formation. As he did against England. Exactly as he did against England, and it worked really well, and there were logical reasons for doing that. Yeah. It was nothing like that. Okay, so here's some follow-up questions then. The first one is, and and just answer the question, because what will happen, and you do this sometimes, it's a good thing. It it speaks to our... uh, Chemistry, but you'll start answering the next question I'm about to ask before I've asked it, and then I've got nothing to say. So, okay. First question Was this a tactical masterclass by Roberto Martinez? Yes. Okay. Second question. Well, did you want to say some more on that? You told me not to. I know I did. That's confusing. (laughs) I've ruined the chemistry. Uh, The second question then is to talk about uh, the specific, it's a multiple part question. Talk about the various, talk about the various areas on the field. And uh, where this formation worked best. So here's a question I have as an observer. I've never s- seen this sort of thing that I'm aware of before, with a sort of shifting, a shifting back line. Firstly, we can assume that it might have surprised Brazil because it surprised us, and that isn't glorifying ourselves. It's just to suggest that expecting a team to play Brazil second ranked in the world in the quarterfinal of a World Cup and play two different formations interchangeably is not something that you would expect, is it? So what difference and what benefit did Belgium get beyond the surprise element of defending in a four and presumably playing when they had the ball in a three was an easier way to play the ball out from the back? However, I did notice that whenever the ball was slowly passed backwards in the Belgian ranks, if they won it up in Brazil's half or if they broke but there was no opportunity to shoot... They would take a minute to pass it all the way back to the keeper, who would then kick it long. So, what what benefit did they get out of doing those two different things? Um, bearing in mind this is a group of players who are clearly comfortable to do something which is as nuanced as that and as complicated as that. 
So in possession, it allowed them to transition to having more men in midfield. And this is when they have three at the back. When the, yeah, exactly. Um, so it allowed them to attack in a similar sort of style to how they've been attacking before in the transition to the forwards. Yeah. It wasn't the same as what they've been doing previously. No. And the, the changes there being De Bruyne playing higher up acting as more of a link man, but also Hazard dropped off quite a lot. Yeah. And this Lukaku wide right, obviously to attack the space in where... Behind either, Marcelo. Yeah, well, either way, where Marcelo should have been, but yeah. wasn't because they were counter-attacking, or on occasion when the transition was slower to keep Marcelo kind of pinned into where he was. Now, Brazil very much had three in midfield, um, I thought Fernandinho had a terrible, terrible game. Right. Um, but what by 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 having three at the back and getting Munier to to rush forwards and Chadley to kind of push out, then it meant that they were always one man over in that central midfield area. Right. De Bruyne was able to not have to defend as much, not have to track back as much. I mean, there were times when the ball was maybe only a couple of metres from De Bruyne, and he was just strolling around. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's sort of like the messy thing yeah. of having your most creative player not really needing to do quite so much work. Yeah. So that when they were then able to transition quickly, De Bruyne would A, be in space, because he wasn't immediately adjacent to a man that he was marking, yeah. um, but also he had reserves energy. of energy. And, and De Bruyne is very hard working. I mean, that's not... No. He's been instructed not to do that. That's not him being lazy. The analogy that that brings to mind, the idea of pushing, pushing personnel up the pitch formationally as, they, as the game progresses with possession... Is 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 a is one of a sort of squeezing toothpaste out of a a, a toothpaste thing, where you you know you're sort tube. of your tube yeah no, thanks Phil and you're just sort of squeezing things forward a little bit and creating uh, pressure as you go, but then as you would never do with a toothpaste tube squeezing it back down again has anyone ever done that no one's ever done that yeah. squeezing uh, toothpaste the other way that'd be weird that's mental, I mean I think I think Belgium needed to make it well why doesn't everyone do this. Ooh, I mean, I mean if, if you get if you're getting the best of both scenarios, yeah. and you can do that against Brazil, who have countless incredible attacking players, uh, and you get the solidity of of four at the back, you get the playmaking ability of three at the back. You can push up to create overloads in midfield when you need to. You can pull back to be more solid when you need to. Why isn't everyone doing that? Because because it worked specifically in this game for a couple of reasons. Brazil's left back gets too far forward yeah. in terms of his defensive positioning. So that's why it makes sense to leave Lukaku out and it's why it makes sense to push Mounier up yeah. because you can either then hem Marcelo back or Marcelo's just not there and you can double up when you're attacking out wide. Mm. Brazil have been robbed of... The, well, their, their best right back didn't even make the World Cup because of injury, Dani Alves. Danilo isn't playing either because he's carrying an injury. Um, so Fagner is not as capable of getting forward and supporting Willian uh, down the right-hand side as either of those two players would be, which means you don't have to have a natural left-back at left-back. Mm. So you can afford to play Vertonghen there. Right. Vertonghen's a very capable central defender, obviously. Yeah. He's not a natural left-back, but that's okay because they're not being attacked all that well by more than one person down that side. Right. 
Chadley can get across to help if required, uh, and Hazard put in quite a shift, kind of tracking back through that left half space as well. Mm. And presumably they don't need a out and out striker beyond Lukaku on the right because they knew that they were going to be scoring goals on the break, which is what they did. Yes, and also Lukaku was not staying out on the right. Right. Um, you know, he he was he was either cutting inside himself with the ball or he was looking to play a ball back inside and then make a forward run to receive the pass back in a more central position. Okay. So he was he was starting out there, but he wasn't staying there the entire time. So back to question 1 then. Yeah. Roberto Martinez, tactical masterclass. It it sounds like it's your opinion that he has specifically chosen this team and this style of playing in op- based on the opposition Brazil. Yeah, I think he would have looked at I mean everyone knows how Marcelo plays and and attacking that space makes sense if you've got the players to do it. I think playing Fernandinho rather than Casemiro, um, that probably gave him the idea, okay, maybe we don't need to sit so much on Casemiro because uh, on, on that defensive midfielder because it's not Casemiro, it's it's not the person who's used to playing there. There mm. might be a bit of a weakness there. I mean we thought that Fellaini might push up on him and kind of disrupt him, man mark him and be a, an aerial outball. What Martinez did was much, much more sophisticated than that. Mm. Now, it is interesting, and it begs the question, will he make another massive shift for the next game, which is going to be against France? Mm. Um, Because in all of the other games, except for when he used Fellaini in the inside left position against England he's played very, very similarly. So he's not adapted his shape or his team's instructions predicated on how the opponent's set up Mm. until now. Mm. Now, does that mean that as he gets toward harder opposition, he thinks, okay, we can can make some tweaks and stuff, you know, Mm. make some changes that are predicated on nullifying certain threats or exploiting certain weaknesses? It's it's harder to see because of the number of changes, but in the England game, they did change their style of playing as well when they pushed Fellaini up on the inside left channel. Yeah, that's why I say, apart from that one, in in terms of the the formation, the defensive style, that was all quite similar. Um, I mean, that was a game that it now transpires. I I suspect neither side was really that keen on winning. But... um, you know, it's not it's not like he's been reactive in every single game. But then, you know, you can say the same for Chesterstoff, mm. who who was reactive only in one game and mm-hmm. to great effect. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe that's when, if you size up the opposition and think, okay, here's the, the one time we're going to play, like, the trump card, chuck everything around, something that they've been presumably working on. You don't just switch to this. No on the off chance that it'll work um, and then revert back to your normal style for the France game. I don't know. I mean, this this is the World Cup of like things that make our job seem redundant mm. because you <laughs> try and analyse or, or, I mean, not that we try and predict stuff, but no one will have seen this coming. No. Literally no one. No. So, uh, Philippe, I'm going to ask you again now, uh, after that performance and after... The Roberto Martinez tactical masterclass. How you feel about facing that Belgian side? Because they looked impressive, didn't they? Yeah, trepidatiously, obviously, but I, I still feel the French that the French that France can beat them mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, I, 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 it's more of a 
personal preference thing really I'd rather be playing uh, Belgium and kind of losing to them than I would have been Brazil yeah okay um, and you can't say the same thing about the, the, the front side obviously you've got Kylian Mbappe who can play on the right hand side or Dembele can play on the right hand side yeah. we mentioned there that Fagner wasn't posing much of a threat for Batongan, but presumably France have got the pace out wide to, yeah. to make what Belgium did today much more difficult well I think there was even moments against um uh, Tunisia, I think it was, and they still looked a bit dodgy down there. They still looked a bit dodgy in those areas. Yeah. I, I still think there's a lot of scope for the French down the flanks yeah. uh, against Belgium. Yeah. Um, okay. What did you make of Brazil today? I mean, the, the, the way I felt about them generally throughout the whole tournament, very underwhelming. Mm. Um, I think we, we said earlier on that I think probably the almost the hardest team they've come across, as in the way they played during the game, was possibly Switzerland. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean it's, it's it's another massively underwhelming um, year for, for for Brazilian football, and yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, Alex, what did you make of Brazil? I think they were. I think they suffered from, as we said, uh, being a, a, a obviously talented side. You know the way they got through Comunidade qualifying, uh, they tightened up massively, barely conceded any goals during that, and that's really really difficult. But the way they were moving through this World Cup suggested that they had to step it up at some point. Mm. And maybe maybe they weren't as good as all that and they couldn't step it up against the, the weaker sides that they faced in that group. Yeah. Um, or maybe they kind of strolled through those games and then when they suddenly had to bring it, they couldn't. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there, there are some... There are some issues around the way that Chicha has has built that side so much around what Neymar can bring. Mm. So that if Neymar is having an off game or or an not, off tournament or an off tournament, um, no, I mean he's he's had moments of brilliance. Sure, um, I'm just being cruel, but there isn't really a plan B there. You know, Douglas Costa to a degree is a plan B. And but the weird thing about today's game was that at half time they brought Roberto Firmino on, they pushed Gabriel Jesus out wide, and then they waited 20 minutes before they brought Douglas Costa on, who made a noticeable difference playing yeah. in the natural role. Well, Gabriel Jesus has played as a wide right forward in, in the past before he moved to City. Yeah. Um, but you would think against. That Belgian back line, where Vincent Company, I thought was was excellent. Um, Aldevera was always excellent, but you know this is not this is not a Belgian back line that always fills you with confidence. Mm. And Firmino has a degree of a, a kind of a combination of physicality and movement that might just have unsettled them. So you know, possibly if Chicha were to play this game again, he would consider starting with with Costa and Firmino. Uh, instead of Jesus and William and just mm. trying to stretch that play more. But then he will have been thinking that he'll be facing wing-backs. Yeah. He will have expected Chadley to be wide left all the time. He might have expected Chadley to be Carrasco. Uh, he could well have done. So, you know, in that in that regard, having William there does make sense mm. because you're kind of doubling up on the flank defensively. William does that a lot better than Douglas Costa. So that does make sense mm. in a way I don't know it's just um, and presumably they were missing Casemiro definitely they were missing Casemiro yes okay. I mean again he's you know he's we've seen what he's done for Real Madrid 
consistently now. Mm. He does the same thing for Brazil. It's just that incredibly tidy, no-nonsense covering. He's always an outball. And when you're going to push so many players forward, I mean, we saw, obviously, De Bruyne's passing today was, was at times, extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, Lukaku's ability to carry the ball as well as little flicks and little pa- little through passes were great. And, and once again, knowing when to leave it. Yeah, exactly. And here, yeah, the, the communication with the, between the team. Also, Azad, as you mentioned, dropping deep. So they do have bags of quality, but there were times when you thought Belgium were breaking and there was just no one in Brazil's midfield. You know, there was Fernandinho totally isolated. I don't know if that's uh, something that Casemiro would have been able to do better or is more used to doing. You would expect that Fernandinho, you know, playing with five, four or five players at Man City ahead of him, gunning up the field, would also be used to that situation. But it did, it did feel at times... It was almost... It was a very weirdly paced game. There were There were instances of, you know, terrifyingly quick breaks of it being end-to-end for one minute and then players sort of passing it around like they were in the park and nothing mm. was happening and the whole time the middle of the pitch seemed to just be empty, acres of space for anyone who wanted to run well, into I think, it. I think Brazil were just massively caught on the hop for the first 20 minutes yeah. about this this shifting um, thing. That, you know, when people talk about a, a formation being effectively what your, kind of, your defensive structure is. Mm. Um, but... You know, obviously, while fullbacks push up and maybe a midfielder will drop out, and nobody's saying that a four-three-three always looks strictly like a four-three-three on the pitch. Yeah. The degree to which Belgium shifted yeah. is—it's definitely not something that another side has done at this World Cup, and, and also, I can't remember it happening. We had the benefit of seeing from the bird's eye view, you right. know, the, the TV camera angle, and it took us twenty minutes to work out what they were doing. Imagine being on the pitch. Yeah. Being told which player is yours to mark, and then realizing they're not where they should be, and you you can't see why, and you can't see where the other players are really, and you're and watching the ball. And in that regard, maybe having Casemiro would have made a difference, just in the sense that he is more used to playing within the rest of that structure, yeah. uh, the Brazilian structure, and mm. so they might have adapted more quickly because the because Fernandinho, yes, okay, he's playing a very similar position to what he does at Man City, but not with the same players as regularly mm. and you know he he was kind of very much slotting in to a position that that wasn't normally his mm. only to face this bizarre kind of whirlwind shifting belgium side that would have confused the shit out of everybody yeah okay so belgium will go on to play france then um we can't make any predictions as we've said as to how they're going to set up but do you think they i mean they've got a good chance haven't they they do have a good chance because any but side. But it's France. Well, no, but any any side with Lukaku, De Bruyne, and Hazard in it has got a good chance of winning any and, game. And Fellaini, sure. Don't forget about and Fellaini. Fellaini. Crucially, and Alderweireld at the back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I still think that there were there were elements of Martinez's game management here in the second half that didn't make sense. Not bringing subs on quickly enough. Not bringing Moussa Dembele on yeah. made no sense at all because yeah. Belgium started to lose that midfield battle. Having someone that could hang on to the ball and carry it better yeah. would have made a lot of sense. Maybe he was afraid to tamper. Yeah, that's that's very probably what it was. Mm. You know, It was going well in a thing that he was asking a lot of the players to be able to do. Mm. I mean, that's the other thing. It knocks on the head the idea that this Belgian camp is is somehow not behind right. Martinez yeah. because there's no way you get players to to make that dramatic a shift mm. 
uh, and and for them to have the confidence and faith in that working to execute it so well if you're not supportive of the manager. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe you had to sit players like De Bruyne down and go, right, this is what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing it, and convince mm. them. But if so, fair play. You know, yeah. it's, it's worked well. Okay, well, uh, as we said, I'm claiming the pun, clutching it close to my chest, claiming the point for that game. Where well, does that leave us? That was us? an exact prediction, wasn't yeah, it? It was. It was my yeah. second exact prediction. Yeah. Uh, where does that leave us in terms of the total tally, the overall tally, Philippe? I'm on nine. Goodness uh, me. You are on six. Oh, it's totally doable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Alex is on four. Goodness me. Deary me. It's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. Come on away. Big boys pulling away. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's make our predictions then for tomorrow afternoon's game, which is England Sweden. England Sweden. Remember the England Sweden song? Remember that one? England Sweden. <laughs> what will your prediction be, Alex? I'm not starting with you, Phil, because we all know what you're going to say, mate. Two one. You always say two one. Maybe you wouldn't today. But I'm going to start with Alex. Penalties. Yeah, I thought you might, Phil. We're going to two nil England. Two nil England. I'm going to be a dick now, and I'm going to go for 1-0 England. Ooh. Undercut you right there. That's, that's what you did to me. Yeah, I know, and it worked, doesn't it? So, it's my new tactic. Uh, right, well, that is the end of day... It's day 20, guys. Day 20. The end of day 20. Uh, we're upstairs at the Old Red Line. Thank you earlier to Alexander, our Swedish friend, for coming down, uh, visi- visiting us at the Old Red Line Theatre, saying, uh, saying hello. Uh, if you would like to come down for what is probably only one more week of football... We'll be here on game days. We're not here when there's no football. So, come down anyway. But we won't be here. That's probably better. That's probably better. Uh, tomorrow is uh, England-Sweden. We'll be watching that, talking about that. The other game, of course, is Russia-Croatia. We'll be talking about that. And uh, we will speak to you then. <laughs>